On this episode, I sit down with Jeff Schneider. We talk about comfort zones, which is honestly one of my favorite topics, and in particular, pushing your comfort zone. I think that there's something in this episode for pretty much every person out there, whether you are in business, a spouse, um, a friend looking to improve in any aspect of your life. This is just a fantastic episode with very practical advice and some thoughts that Jeff and I share on the value of pushing your comfort zone and more importantly, how to do that. You are listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Thank you, everybody, for uh, joining for another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Today, I have Jeff Schneider with us. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Happy to be on. Thanks, Chris. And um, Jeff is a sales trainer. He um, works, and I guess I'll have to have you explain this, but Mm -hmm. is affiliated with Sandler Training. Correct. Um, And Jeff, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Sure. um, And how you you operate. Yeah, yeah. So I I, uh, have a sales training, coaching, consulting company here in Portland. Work with people throughout the Pacific Northwest to help them improve their sales performance. Um, work with a lot of B2B clients, but uh, some B2C clients as well. Teaching them a systematic approach to selling. I like to call it a trusted advisor methodology for being able to qualify and disqualify opportunities, shrink selling cycles, increase closing ratios, things like that. A training center mm-hmm. in downtown Portland, boot camp seminars, regular uh, sales training and sales management training programs. Plus, I go to companies and train uh, their people in-house as well. That's awesome. So I reached out to Jeff. Um, I I think you I first met you through the entrepreneur organization. You came and gave a little um, talk. Yeah. Yeah. But I had uh, reached out to Jeff last. Actually, it wasn't even last week. It was like Monday. And he, I have to tell you, Jeff, you were the the um, most willing to just jump right in with minimal uh, questions. <laughs> um, and I was immediately, you know, when we decided to talk about um, one of you said was your favorite topics on comfort zone. That's actually something that I'm personally obsessed with mm. um, and just the idea of constantly making yourself uncomfortable and being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. So yeah. I'm very excited to dive into this topic today, but I guess I'll let you kind of, um, you, the, the title that you had given me was Breaking Through Your Comfort Zone. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about um, Sure that. Yeah, yeah. So this is a a core topic within Sandler. All of us Sandler trainers, there's 250 of us nationwide. We're in 30 countries. Uh, We we all have this as a core part of our curriculum. Our our company was founded by David Sandler many years ago, and and so it it all comes back to his philosophy of sales and business and life. And, And basically the idea is that we're all in comfort zones, some of them of our own making, some of them uh, we, we've taken on from parents or society. But, but, but a comfort zone basically is a place in which we're comfortable. It, if you think about it as an HVAC metaphor, you know we're probably sitting in rooms right now that are about 70 degrees or so. And that means that the temperature can fluctuate between 68 and 72. When it gets too hot, the AC kicks in. When it gets too cold, the heat kicks in. And, and so we're all in these narrow bands of comfort and, um, you know, unfortunately, not, not a lot gets accomplished when we're in these narrow bands of comfort. And, and so um, one of the first things to understand, I, I think about this, is that we tend to look at ourselves uh, and compare ourselves with other people. Um, and when we see people who are doing really well, we don't feel as good about ourselves. We feel not okay. When we see people who aren't doing as well as us, we tend to feel better. We, we feel more okay. Um, Chris, have you been to a high school reunion? Not yet. I've got one coming up in, um, I think, next year, actually, will be my 10-year. Okay. Well, it, it, it's an interesting experience because you, you don't have to be judgmental in order to experience this. You'll meet certain people and you'll uh, talk to them and you'll say, wow, you, you've done that, right? And it kind of makes you feel a little bit not okay in, in, in comparison. Then you'll meet some other people who you thought would have accomplished a lot and you'll kind of go, huh, that's all you've done? 
And all of a sudden you feel <laughs> a little bit better about yourself, right? So in Sandler, we, we call this the okay, not okay principle. The basic idea being that we tend to feel more okay about ourselves when we see other people who are a little bit less okay than we are. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're watching the show Cops on television, that's a great example of it. I mean, the only reason why people watch that show is because they're watching people who make them feel better about themselves, right? Or, or people <laughs> getting true. kicked off the island or the first couple episodes of American Idol. Um, and, and so as long as we're doing this, we're, we're kind of staying in our comfort zone. But in order to really break out of our comfort zones, what, what we need to do is understand that those things that we're looking at, we, we could call them role performance, right? We're, we're rating ourselves and rating other people on, on a one to, one to 10 scale, if you will, uh, on the role performance. And role performance could include how am I doing as a parent or as a child or as a friend or a sibling or a spouse? How am I doing as a salesperson? Or break that one down into some more specifics. How am I doing um, in prospecting, in closing, in managing my, my accounts? How am I doing you know, with my health and my fitness and things like that? But, but then we have this other part of the picture, which we call identity. And identity has to do with not so much what you do, but who you are. And, and so what, what goes into our identity is things like our self-concept, our self-worth. Um, it's not so much what others think about us. It's what we believe to be true about ourselves. And this really becomes the key for us breaking out of our comfort zones. Because our role performance is variable, and a lot of it is not within our control. But our identity is completely within our control. In fact, let, let me share with you something David Sandler said. That to me, th these are some of the best uh, words I've ever heard. He said, you can only perform in your roles in a manner that's consistent with how you see yourself conceptually. So in other words, our role performance, whether we're salespeople, entrepreneurs, athletes, entertainers, whatever it is, our role performance is largely controlled by how we see ourselves conceptually. And, and so most people, as they're trying to increase performance and get better results, they work really hard on their skills, on their effort, on all of those things, as they should. But, but what this suggests is that if we're really gonna reach higher levels of performance consistently, it will be preceded by a change in the way that we see ourselves. Hmm. So are you, the one thing that you've mentioned a couple times is the, the, the jumping to that, idea of comparing ourselves to other people yeah in order to focus on our own identity mm. is that a practice that is um negatively impacting that uh it might be it, i i i think it's not so much that you know, you know you need to stop yourself and say shame on you every time you compare yourself to somebody as you're walking by the street that isn't so much the point i i think the point is to recognize that success has less to do with how we're doing compared to other people. Success has to do with how we're doing compared to our potential. So mm -hmm. I love the word potential. In fact, when you think about the root word of potential, what, what, what is the root word of potential? Potent? Yeah, sometimes people in Portland say pot, but it's potent. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so potent means, you know, powerful, capable, um, and, and so most people, Chris, I believe, are just scratching the surface of their potential. And again, it's because of what they believe about themselves. So for instance, I believe I'm a terrible golfer, right? And I have evidence to back that up. <laughs> I've never <laughs> honestly broken a hundred on a real golf course in my entire life. I mean, I'll kick the ball and give myself an eight, right? But I'm like a 105, 110 kind of golfer. I'm really no good. But, but if you and I were playing golf at a real golf course like Bandon Dunes or Pumpkin Ridge or, or so, something like that, and on the front nine from the real tees, I shot a 35 on the front nine, what do you think I'd do on the back nine? Terribly, 60, 70. <laughs> I would. I'd shoot a 70. I absolutely would. Maybe even worse. Because just, my, to just to live up to your that's own it. conception that's it. of yourself? It's a comfort zone. My, my comfort zone is between 100 and 110. And so if I ever want to get good at golf, yes, I have to take lessons and buy new clubs. But really, the bigger issue is I have to change the conception that I have of myself as a golfer. Otherwise, I'm going to remain stuck in my comfort zone. So one of the insights David Sandler had was that we're all in comfort zones. And, and it's not so much about breaking out of your comfort zone permanently. It's about changing your comfort zone. 
getting comfortable with different experiences and different paradigms. And, and so one of the things he said was, you're making exactly how much money you think you're worth. Not a penny more, not a penny less. Remember when I first heard that, I thought, nah, it couldn't be that easy. But what I've noticed is that every big gain in income I've had since I started my business 12 years ago was preceded by a significant change in my self-concept. Because again, we can only perform in our roles in a manner that's consistent with how we see ourselves conceptually. And, and so I, I think what that means is we have to constantly be pushing ourselves towards what types of people am I comfortable calling on as a salesperson? What types of people do I hang out with? What types of books do I read? And, and how do I show up in any given meeting, um, particularly if it makes us uncomfortable to show up in a certain way? Mm. Yeah, I was going to say the um, potential that what you're talking about, that I, I definitely agree that most people are only scratching the surface of their potential. When I was in high school, my basketball coach always used to say that potential is the longest four-letter word in the dictionary. Ah. And I, <laughs> I was so confused by that for the <laughs> longest time. Um, and then I realized that what he meant was the four-letter word is a bad word. Yeah. And, um, or, you know, all the bad words are four letter words and potential is a very bad word because, um, it's, you know, you, no matter how much you have of it, it really doesn't, it's not, it's not valuable to you at all unless you start tapping into that, which what it, to me, it sounds like you're saying, um, going in and pushing yourself to things that you traditional that you may not enjoy, like hanging out with people, um, maybe it's, you need to stop hanging out with certain people, um, in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Would yeah. You say? I, I, Could that be a, a I, I possible think scenario? I, I think that's part of it, Chris. It's funny because potential is a word that could have a negative or a positive connotation. I see it as positive. I, I, I see this idea of potential as being, do you have any idea what your potential is? All right. So I, I, I have a basketball story too. When, when I was in high school, my junior year, uh, I started on varsity and we went two and 21. We sucked, we were really bad. And so we, we got a new coach after my junior year and uh, he, he came down from San Jose and had tons of, of uh, high level uh, victories under his belt. And during the springtime, just began coaching us on fundamentals, you know, rebounding and blocking out and man-to-man -man defense and passing and ball handling and so on. Put us into two summer leagues. We played a lot of basketball. And, and at the uh, end of the last summer league in August, he took me aside after the last game and he gave me a little pep talk. And what he said to me was essentially this. He said, Jeff, do you have any idea how good you are? And I remember sitting there listening to him going, you talking to me? What? <laughs> it was just, I was kind of stunned. And, uh, but what he did was he painted a picture of my potential. And I really believe this is what all great leaders do is that they're able to see the potential in somebody else before they can see it for themselves. And they're willing to articulate it, and they're, they're able to hold on to that belief for them until that person can hold on to it for themselves. And, and, and so that's, that's why I see this, this mm. word potential as being golden, because we've all got so much potential. Yeah, we don't want to just sit there mm. and say, I had potential. We want to realize it, right? And so fast forward to the first game of my senior right. year, we're playing a big high school from San Jose. We're from a small town called Gilroy, south of San Jose, and we're supposed to get clobbered by them because we were no good. We beat them. I scored 23 points. I had 13 rebounds. I was blocking shots. I was in the zone. And, and so after the game, you know, when I got home and I was laying in bed, what, what do you think I said to myself in terms of self-talk? How did you do that? Kinda. Or is it more like I am good and you that was the moment that it all clicked? Man, I wish that's what I said. But but what I really said was, well, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I better not get used to that. It's not like I'm gonna average twenty-three points and thirteen rebounds. See, I reverted back to my comfort zone and I never had another game like that again. It's a sad story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you would think that, you know, it's like, and that launched my four year scholarship to UCL. No, that that isn't it. Right. Um, and, and so unfortunately, I didn't have the methodology, the apparatus back then to do what I should have done, because what I should have done was seen this as being the opportunity mentally for me to make this my new normal. Um, 
when, when you ask me about books later, what, one of the books I'll mention is uh, Learned Optimism by uh, Martin Seligman. And, and in this tremendous book that I, I always recommend, he gave a, uh, a simple way to be able to take positive experiences and make them normal, thus breaking out of your comfort zone. And he had three simple words that he, wanted, he wants people to ask whenever they have an experience, either good or bad. And these words are personal, pervasive, and permanent. And, and so, g give an example of this. Let, let's say that you're in college and you flunk a math test, okay? Um, and you're a pessimist, all right? What might your self-talk sound like as a pessimist? I've, never, I've always known I haven't been good at this. I don't know why my parents are making me be an engineer. <laughs> yeah, just right? spiral out of control. Right, all, all that stuff. And, and so what, what he says is that the question you should ask yourself is, number one, was this personal? And the answer might be, well, yeah, I didn't study hard enough, and I better study harder next time. Was it pervasive? In other words, is this going to spill into other areas of your life? Right? That's where we have to say, no, I'm going to study harder next time. I'm still getting good grades in other classes. And is it permanent? Does this describe who you are at your core? Again, the answer is no. And so when we have negative experiences, we need to make them as impersonal, as isolated, and as temporary as possible. But on the flip side, when we have a positive experience, for instance, I've, I've had a couple of um, talks that I've given recently where I know I just nailed it, right? I got tons of feedback, but I didn't even need it. I, I just, you, you know what I mean? You, you know when you do a good job. Mm -hmm. And so what I try and discipline myself to do when I'm leaving that event, when I'm still kind of glowing, you know, is to take five minutes when I'm driving down the freeway minimum and just soak in it. Don't allow any distractions to come into my mind. Push them away. Take five minutes and just revel in the fact that, was it personal? Yes, I just did that. Is it pervasive? Absolutely. This is going to make my next training that much better. It's also going to make my next sales call that much better and my ability to coach my clients that much stronger. It's going to help me as a parent. It, it, it's going to help me at the gym tonight. I, I feel more energy. And is it permanent? Yep, this is just who I am. And so what we do when we do that is we go from 70 degrees to 72, and we make that the new normal. And so now our comfort zone is between 70 and 74. And so that's the, I guess my question is, so that's an interesting, that's a very practical uh, application or a tool that I can pull out of my toolbox. Yep in those moments where I'm going towards the person that I want to become. Yeah. What other things can you, um, as far as comfort zone goes, are you an advocate of basically like, you know, think of something you're uncomfortable with and then do it. <laughs> is that like the, is that one strategy that you could take to, to, is that, and does it, does that, uh, directly apply or can you apply what you learn from those things to your actual business career you know, personal life. I, I think that. things that we're uncomfortable with and things that we're afraid of are, by definition, outside of our comfort zone. Um, and we start doing them, we usually find that they aren't quite as scary as we once thought they were. Um, and as we begin to demonstrate some mastery, they become in our comfort zone, right? So that's that's another way that we grow, is is by identifying those things which make us uncomfortable. And, and again, I, I do a lot of my stuff inside out, uh, meaning I'm always thinking about what are we thinking about, uh, kind of meta in that sense. Um, and and th this is uniquely human ability for us to sit back and analyze through our thoughts, our thoughts. And, and so if I find something that's outside of my comfort zone, right, which might be, hey, I'm 54 years old, but I want to go play basketball with those young kids today and see if I've still got it, right? Everything inside me is saying, don't do it. It's not going not gonna to turn out well. I'm like, ah, why not? <laughs> and, and so the first step is, is to realize, I think, what it is that we're thinking that's holding us back from doing it in the first place. What are we afraid might happen? Because we might determine that what we're afraid might happen would be pretty serious and there's a high chance of it happening. So for instance, if I want to step into the ring with a professional boxer to see how it goes, I might want to analyze why I want to do that. What, what, the, what is the upside I see from it and what is the potential downside? Because that may not be a good idea, right? 
there, there's certain comfort zones that, that uh, are worth staying in. For instance, when you're in, in the airplane at 30,000 feet, yeah, you don't really want to know what it's like to jump out without a parachute, right? Stay, stay in that comfort zone. But, but most of the time, we can identify a certain fear which is likely irrational. Well, one of the things that I, I find to be helpful is, you know, emotions are, especially negative emotions, fear and anger, for instance, they're signals to us. We, we, we shouldn't ignore them. And so when I'm afraid of something, trace that fear, right? I, I always like to say, where do you feel fear in your body? I, I feel it in the pit of my stomach. So it's good to know where you feel it so you can back up to your head because literally what that feeling in your stomach is, is a chemical reaction from your neurons firing because you just got done thinking a thought and you secreted certain hormones. In this case, because it was a negative thought, you probably secreted a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline and it went straight down to the cell receptors and you're feeling it. So trace it back to the thought, the fearful negative thought that you just had, and then see if you can replace it, right? For, so again, basketball analogy, it's pretty easy for me to visualize clank, right? Right, Hitting the back of the rim and the thing just bouncing away. It takes more discipline for me to be able to visualize swish. And, and I, I have to keep working through it and pushing away these negative visualizations, which are so simple to come by, until I can start to address what what really needs to be addressed here. Are we are we programmed to um, think, or do you, like the negative thoughts and visualizing the worst case scenario? Is that something that humans just instinctively do? It's an interesting question, and. I, you know, it, it gets to the nature-nurture argument to a certain extent. I, I don't know if, I, I would say no, it's not natural. It, it wasn't the way that we were designed. I, I could get really philosophical and theological here and tell you my reasons why, but I'm simply going to, you know, say no, I don't think it's natural. However, is it normal? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, from, from what I've heard, most human beings, their self-talk is about 75% negative. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's because that darn amygdala inside of us is too big, right? This, this reptilian part of our brain that, uh, you know, amongst its other functions controls fight or flight. And, and so, you know, the, the amygdala was very useful um, hundreds of thousands of years ago when there were saber-toothed tigers roaming the, the range and uh, we had to decide whether we we're going to try and kill it or run. Mm. Um, unfortunately, we still see saber-toothed tigers today, but they're just co-workers, <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's not. They're not going to kill us, right? Usually, <laughs> no, no, they they really aren't. They really aren't, and and so we, we we tend to overreact, and that's why I think it's important to know. I mean, when you think about negative emotions, they probably fall under the heading of either anger or fear, for the most part. And so, if you know what fear feels like in your body and you can identify it quickly, then you can trace it back. Same thing with anger. If you know what anger feels like in your body, then you can trace it back and then go into what we uh, refer to in Sandler as the adult ego state. This is transactional analysis, a psychological model that David Sandler um, adopted when he was developing his selling system. And the adult ego state is different from the other two that we're most concerned about. The critical parent, that's the angry, pointing finger, you should, you must. And the adaptive child, which is the fearful, overwhelmed, yes, yes ma'am, whatever you say, the customer's always right. The adult ego state is uh, a state that all of us have. We can access it at any point in time. The adult ego state is courageous, is fearless, is um, more or less void of emotion. I mean, it, it's, it's analyzing. It's working from your prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain where option thinking, critical thinking, probability, creativity resides. Um, it, it's the place where things slow down, right? And, and it allows us to be able to take a look at a situation ask some questions and come up with a with a better solution so i'm kind of confused still on the adult ego state yeah. critical parent adaptive child are these three things that david sandler would say we all have and they kind of ebb and flow yeah what 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 these are technically he would be uh ta transactional analysis psychologists would say are ego states 
They are tape recorders, if you will. They've, they've been recording since we were one year old. Um, and they are different ways of us relating to people and situations. And, and so most of us are prone to um, not acting upon situations, but reacting. And when we're in the critical parent ego state, we're reacting to things by becoming anxious, by becoming worried, by becoming hostile, by shifting blame, by becoming irritated. Um, and, and this is something that we can experience all by ourselves as well. So you're just sitting at your office, you're looking at email, and before you know it, you're saying things like, dang, you're stupid, Jeff. Why didn't you do this? You knew better. You always do this. What's wrong with you? Right? And, and, and these thoughts pop in our head, and we just think of it as ourselves, but, but really, it, it's the critical parent. And, and to think of it as recordings that you heard when you were a kid is helpful, because that means there's something you can do about it. The adaptive child ego state is um, more about feelings of inadequacy, of insecurity. You know, if, if, if you think about a three-foot-tall kid, uh, five years old, and they're in a world of six-footers who are at a uh, crowded plaza, maybe Pioneer Courthouse Square, and there's a protest going on, and people are yelling. And You know, it's an overwhelming feeling, a feeling of, I can't handle this, so I better be super nice to everybody so that perhaps I can make my way through all of this. The problem with both of those ego states is that they're just reactive. They're, they're, they're fairly powerless, whereas the adult ego state is the ego state in which we can take a look at a situation which may have felt overwhelming previously, and with confidence, we can head into it with curiosity, begin asking questions, and, and eventually come up with a solution which is going to um, fit that particular situation. How does this relate to breaking through your comfort zone? I, I, I think that, that the idea of realizing your full potential is already present in your adult ego state. And the good news is you all have one. Hmm. So I think the way that you describe that, I think I, I'm going to tell you a story of myself and, and you Please. can explain why I feel this way because yes. I don't know. Yeah. So one of the things that I have to do in my own job is um, – the way, and the I guess have to is an interesting way I said that. Um, one of the things yes. I get to do is cold call. Um, so mm -hmm. and I do I for the last like probably five months I've gone in and out of periods of weeks and months where I'm super disciplined and I you know I set a goal of five new calls you know. 15 follow-up calls or 10 and 10 or whatever it is, but I, I'm very disciplined. And then there are other times, and if I'm being honest, the last week would be a time where um, I just have, if I don't get up at 5 a.m. and start calling people on the East Coast and I do, you know, you know, six calls in the first, before I go work out at six, mm -hmm. if I don't do that right when I get out of bed, then I will, you know, that I get back from the gym at 7.30 and I get into this, um, I don't know if I've ever severely analyzed my self-talk in those moments, but I will start procrastinating. I'll go make oatmeal and then I'll come back and then think, oh, maybe I should, you know, put the dishes away and then like, oh, I'm kind of thirsty and then I should check the email and then I get on these rabbit holes and then all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock. I haven't called anybody um, the entire morning. And then, you know, you start getting into, well, it's almost the end of the day for people on the East coast. I might've missed my window. Maybe I should wait till tomorrow. But I guess when I'm, the reason that you made me, what you just described made me think of this is because for whatever reason on the days where, and it's usually prepping the night before that I wake up and it's like, I try to not even think about it. And I just dial the first number and say, hello. <laughs> There you and go. as soon as I do, if I, if I can do that, I usually can get through all my calls in about an hour and a half. Yeah. And on days that I don't do that, it takes me six hours to do the exact same amount of work. I think you're describing the plight of the average salesperson on planet Earth. And, um, and, and so when, when we're talking about cold calling in particular, I mean, cold calling can mess with your head in a big way. And, and most of us have what David Sandler called head trash about prospecting. Th things that we were taught 
um, when we were very young. For instance, we were taught not to talk to strangers, right? And, and we were taught to not ask people about money and to mind our own business and to speak only when spoken to and respect your elders and things like that. Now, now when you look at those rules, it made sense perhaps when you were five years old. But now that you're 25, 35, 45, 55, and your job is to sell, should we be talking to strangers, yes or no? Yeah, obviously. Yes, yeah, you have to. Yeah, because they have money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So we all, don't. They do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so this is our job. And, and so what, what we really want to do is get out of the emotional state where we have all of these thoughts going on. We want to make ourselves pretty unemotional about the task that we have to do. David Sandler used to say, just do the behavior. Just put together a behavioral plan and do that behavior. And, and if we're going to get emotional about anything, what we want to get emotional about is the outcome that we're looking forward to a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years in the future from repeatedly making cold calls, accessing high-level decision makers, making sales, and accomplishing our goals. That's what we want to be emotional about mm. is, is that desired outcome at some point in the future. And then so the key is, because I was going to say, does because I feel like if you asked me in a time where I was doing well with that, like, oh, I'm crushing it. Like I've, I've hit, you mm -hmm. know, 15 days in a row where I've called, you know, 35 people in every day. And it's just, you know, I've done X number of demos and I'm just on cloud mm -hmm. nine. And I would say I was pretty good at cold calling. But does it ever or do you ever um, that that emotional reaction is always lurking and can come out? I'm never guessing. goes away. It's much like public speaking. So I do a lot of public speaking. And, you know, the first couple of times I was terrified. Uh, I usually don't get terrified these days, although there's a certain audience that could terrify me, I suppose. So the people that are very good or successful, they have just gotten very good at being emotionless in those and almost just looking at it as numbers and just make 10 calls and then get emotional about the future. That and... And also, there, there's some neurobiology here as well. I mean, the, the chemical mix of fear and anxiety is very similar to the chemical mix of excitement. And so to a certain extent, it depends on how you interpret what you're feeling in your body. That, that one relates a little bit more to public speaking. Um, but, you know, I love this quote from Stephen Covey. Uh, he said that successful people are in the habit of doing things that unsuccessful people don't like to do. Right, that would include cold calling. Mm. And he said, successful people don't like doing those things either, but their disliking is subordinated to the strength of their purpose. And, and so you gotta know why you're doing it. Because this is, the, the, you know, no matter what you're doing in life, sales is a great example. There will be things mm. you don't like doing. And, and so the, the question isn't, do you like doing it? Do you feel like doing it today? David Sandler said it this way. He said, it's not how you feel that determines how you act. It's how you act that determines how you feel. Right. And, and so at 6 a.m. in the morning, my guess is that often you don't feel like going to the gym. And I don't know about you, but when, when I go to work out in the, in, in the morning, I have all kinds of battles that go through my head about whether I'm actually going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have to trap myself and make it a foregone conclusion by putting my gym shoes and my gym clothes right at the foot of my bed so that when I stand up, I trip over them and then I have the walk of shame back to the um, closet to put them away if I'm choosing not to work out, right? Right, yep. We, we have to trap ourselves. The day, the, that's all, that's I feel like the key for me and all of those things that are, I love once I do it is uh, it's 100% the preparation the night before even to the to the, you know when I was getting into the calling, I would have everything laid out on my desk when I went to bed. So when I walked into my office in the morning, I literally could push a button and then be talking to someone. That's right. And if I don't do that, um, it's just you know. And then why don't you do that every day? It just gets into discipline and all that. So Stephen Covey, you know, his book was called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and and in the first chapter he talks a lot about the importance of habits. It's another great book called The Power of Habit. If you haven't read it, they really get into the social mm. science research of why habits work. And one one of their findings was that um, we look at some people and we're like, wow, that guy's so disciplined. Well, we all have discipline in certain areas. And we lack it in certain other areas. And, and so 
what, what, what they found was that we all have about the same amount of willpower on a daily basis, and it is finite. And, and so if you're using up all your willpower like before noon, then you just kind of run out of it by the, you know. And, and so the, the best thing you can do to be disciplined is to establish habits so that you don't have to use as much willpower to get those things done. Mm. So anything you can do to trap yourself right, is going to require less willpower. That's like the uh, example of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs wearing the same thing every single day or having the same breakfast or, you know, just eliminating those decisions that a good majority of the world gets caught up in. Do I wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? No, maybe the orange one's better. And, you know, 10 minutes later, you're half-dressed and still not sure what to do. Yep. Would you say that in general, um, it is a, like a, can can you make a definitive statement that successful people are gen, or not even generally but are flat out better at stepping outside their comfort zone that's an interesting question i i would say that successful people have learned to separate their role performance from their identity and they are working on their identity on a regular basis and that they're believing things differently than mediocre people. Mm. Then that identity, that identity that you're talking about is the self-concept, self-worth, all that yes. stuff. Yes. Yep. You can only perform in your roles in a manner that's consistent with how you see yourself conceptually. And, and so that identity then allows the Tony Robbins of the world to do things like, um, walk up to people who are suicidal at one of his conferences and engage with them, not with the hope that he might impact them, but with the certainty that he is going to save their life. And, mm. and I don't know about you. I mean, I, I really am, you know, love Tony Robbins. And, yeah, uh, you know, have wanted... you seen his documentary? Oh, my gosh. I've seen it five times and I cry every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just mind-blowing. But, but to have the guts to walk up to somebody who is hurting. I mean, I, I love the scene and I'm not your guru with the young lady who uh, he says, what's your deal? And she says, you know, I, I want a healthier diet. And within two minutes, he's like, tell me about your dad. Mm. <laughs> he's just, he's Straight so quickly. Yeah, he just, and it's not magic though. I mean, if you were to talk to Tony, he'd say, I've been doing this so long. I'm paying so much attention to the visual auditory kinesthetic clues. I, I, I'm listening to my own intuition. And, and, but he's fearless, right? So, so at, at the end of the day, he, he does have some tremendous skills that, that are admirable. But, but I think it's his self-concept that allows him fearlessly walk into situations and believe that by asking the right questions, listening, and then being willing to take some risks, because he takes some tremendous risks with people, mm. that he's going to be able to impact their world in a life-changing, cathartic moment. And it's shocking how often he does it. And so the crazy thing to me, though, is that um, presumably he his self-concept was at the level, if not past what, how we see him today, 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. He, so he was already like that. That's the I kind of think about. Um, the, this whole idea of optimism and trying to be more grateful and um, fostering that in my daily life, which is something that I tried to do. Yep. You talk to people that are more pessimists and their response is like, well, obviously it's easy for so-and-so to be happy. They've got, you know, four cars and they fly in a private jet and whatever. Um, or you, I mean, you look at Tony Robbins, like, well, obviously he has all that now. Of course he's happy. Of course yeah, he acts yeah. like he's the king of the world. Right. But the reality is that when he had nothing, he still thought of himself in the same way that he thinks of himself today, right? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because I don't know. I mean, I've heard him tell his story um, about, you know, when, when he was a kid and with his mom and the jobs and the bus and all that stuff. I mean, it, it's amazing. But but he when he tells the story, he does not tell it in such a way that he uh, makes it sound like he always was this optimist. What what he says is he he decided to get a hold of Jim Rohn tapes and he he decided to get a hold of you know this book and he started studying these people and he started telling himself certain things. I mean he'll say right in that that uh, 
you know, documentary that I made this blank, blank, right? I, I, and, and he'll do it with gratitude to God, mm. right? I mean, he, he's, he's a humble guy, but, but he will say, I created the person that is standing before you today, and you can create yourself into whatever you want to be as well. It is deliberate. It is willful. It is a choice. And, and, and that deliberate, willful choice takes place in the adult ego state. And it takes place when we separate our role performance from our identity and we begin to work every single day on this self-concept. I, I don't think Tony was born with this self-concept. Obviously, at a young age, he decided to work on it. He saw some people he admired. But he, he basically said he just did it himself. He worked on it. He created it. Right. Yeah, I think that's important that it's not not to I don't want to imply that he, you know, as a high schooler was like, I'm going to be, you know, talking to 50,000 people and changing their lives. But there was at a point where he consciously decided. And I think that it realistically, it kept evolving. But the bottom line is your self concept has to be ahead of your actual performance. It, it just always will be. It always will be. All, all breakthroughs in performance are preceded by breakthroughs in self-concept. And I've done a fair amount of reading um, on, on uh, books like Mindset by Carol Dweck, uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth, um, Talent is Overrated is another great book. They're, they're all, they, they have a similar message, and that is when we think that people are born with certain talents and skills, Talk to those people and they'll tell you otherwise. Whether it's Mozart or Steve Jobs or Michael Jordan or some of these people that, that, that we, I read Andre Agassi's um, autobiography, which was fascinating. Called Open, I think, right? Open, yeah, yeah. yeah so fascinating. And, and this idea that you're just born with it. They're like, no. <laughs> Do you have any idea what my life was like? I mean, Andre Agassi begins by saying... I love tennis, but man, I hate tennis because <laughs> <laughs> my dad built that machine, that monster, and would hit 5,000 balls a day to me when I was seven years old in the backyard. Right. So when, when, when you see somebody at the age of 18, like Agassi, who's taken the world by storm, understand, like Malcolm Gladwell said, 10,000 hours to mastering with Agassi is 100,000. Mm. I mean, they've, they've worked to get where they are, but, but, but this idea of a a growth mindset, a growth mindset says, I want to grow, I want to learn, and that means I'm going to fail, and I'm okay failing. When I fail, I learn, and I get feedback, and, and that's all good. So, um, as opposed to a fixed mindset, which tends to say, well, I was just born with this IQ, and, and in this family, and there's only so much I can do with it, so I shouldn't get too, you know, uh, big in terms of my goals and so on, because, you know, I, I, again, it, you're, you're, you're staying in a comfort zone and, and nobody's happy with that. Right. I, I have to say the books that you're mentioning, I feel like we are on the exact same wavelength, um, mindset, uh, grit, uh, the power of habit, all of those. The only one I, you mentioned, you know, the second person who suggested open to me, which I think I need to move that to the top of my reading list. And then I have not heard of talent is overrated. Who's that by? Gosh, I don't know. It's at my office downtown. Um, but uh, they, they basically said it, it was very similar to um, Angela Duckworth's uh, grit. Um, and uh, Angela Duckworth would say that uh, if, if there is a certain role that talent plays, um, that grit is at least twice as important. She would say a two-to-one ratio. And, and talent is overrated, they would go so far as to say that talent may even be a myth. That <laughs> it, it may not even exist. <laughs> it all came from um, habits or things that were, it's just someone theoretically, or I guess what I believe, that someone that's you know very talented um, at basketball or the, the sports is where my head always goes. Yeah. But it's probably because their parents were tossing a ball to them when they were an infant. That's right. T Tiger Woods. But at the end of the day, for most things in life, uh, it's 100% learnable. Um, some people just have, you know, 10 years on you if you decide to pick up something at 17 and they've been doing it since they were seven. That's right. So something that I often uh, talk to people about is... Um, cold showers. Yeah. Which, as I when we brought this up, I am realizing it's been a little while since I've done this. But last year, um, one of my buddies 
we just basically made it a pact that we were going to do cold showers for the entire Lent period. <laughs> so I took zero warm showers for 40 days. Um, and uh, I thought, like as I was doing this, the reason that this even came up is because of, I watched this video on YouTube and who knows if the medical you know, field would actually back up these claims that were made. But after doing it, I can say anecdotally, I felt like happier. I was, um, this was in the period of where I was like dialed in with my, my daily tasks and everything. Um, and I believe that it was a hundred percent, like some people would say, well, is it, does it get easier after a while? And I, I, my answer was always, it definitely gets easier, but it's never comfortable. Mm. It's never like, man, I just want to like, you know, I, I, at any, any day, if I had the option, I would choose to take a warm shower because it's more comfortable. But just the idea of doing it solely for the purpose of why, like that is uncomfortable. Why would you do that to yourself is exactly why I did it. Have you ever heard of, well, first of all, I guess I should ask you, have you ever taken a cold shower yourself yes. or for that reason? Yes. And Tony Robbins has been the person that uh, I'm most familiar with who advocates that. And of course, of his homes, he's got his uh, little uh, dunking tank, right? Is, is it 58 degrees that he dunks himself in every morning? And, um, and I've heard of other people advocating this as well. So it's funny that you mention it because I'm like, why are you mentioning it, Chris? Because I, I, this is one of those things that I just can't hardly myself to do. I've tried it before. And, uh, but, but I, I haven't forgotten about it. I haven't given, given up on it. So Chris, you might be inspiring me to give it oh, a try. So you haven't, but you have seen a lot of people talk about it. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm familiar with it and I don't doubt it for a minute. I, I, I've heard that there are physical, mental, and spiritual benefits yeah. to this. And yeah. And I think that, um, someone, someone was, had told me that it actually increases the number of white blood cells. So you, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're less likely to get sick. Um, anyways, all this stuff that's, I think the biggest thing for me was during this time, first of all, I was way more alert when I, you know, after taking a shower at six in the morning um, and you're just, you know, your blood's pumping and you're like ready to go. But then I also just feel like I, I genuinely felt like I was happier, like on a scale from one to 10, I was genuinely happier doing that. But then the question again is, well, why didn't I just keep doing it like Tony Robbins does every day? And it's because... Yeah it's more comfortable to take warm showers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's a metaphor for a lot of things. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And then you, are you aware of, and I kind of mentioned this before, but are you aware of any other things or, or would you, are you an advocate of doing simple things to stretch your um, comfort zone? Like, and I almost feel like this might not even be, someone could describe this as discipline, but it's sort of like, I know that this would taste better with salt, but I'm not going to put salt on it. Um, so it's almost like fasting from things. Um, do you think that that is a way that we could work on being better at stepping outside of our comfort zone? I think so. You know, if someone's like, oh, I could never do the cold shower. Yeah. I like to think that there are things you could do to work up to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, your example of fasting is a good one. I mean, it's it's been a, a spiritual discipline in most religions for thousands of years. There's a reason for it, um, and and so that's that's one example. Um, I, I like the idea of giving up something for Lent. I mean, it, it's kind of old fashioned, but um, but it's it's good. You know, I I, I think that uh, we we are. Um, creatures of habit in so many different ways, and um, our habits are you know include cre creature comforts. So, um, I, you know, from a sales perspective, I, I think it's particularly important that salespeople are uh, disciplined. And, um, and so one of the things I often challenge salespeople to do is if they're tempted to send an email and they have a phone number, pick up the phone, right? Why aren't they calling this person? If they have a, a main number and a direct dial, why aren't you calling the direct dial? If they have a main number in a cell, why aren't you calling the cell? If, if you have the cell, why aren't you calling the person's cell? And, and if you have a couple of different people and one of them is a sales manager and one of them is a CEO, why aren't you, why aren't you at least trying to call the CEO? Right? So those are all things that scare us. 
but again, it takes us out of our comfort zone and eventually we get accustomed to it or more comfortable with it. And, and there's only good results that, that can come from you. It. That's actually an interesting, you made me think of something. So we work with a lot of dentists um, and very frequently mm -hmm. the dentist gives their um, cell phone number on the voicemail. Yep. Is that a situation where um, depend, you know, I don't know, is it, is it okay in your opinion to call that number? Um, Cause uh, you, you have it, you it, know what I mean? It depends. So I, I probably wouldn't dial in that particular case. But for instance, these days I, I use tools like Zoom Info and um, there, there's other tools out there for list building. And so I'll be out on LinkedIn and I'll see a, the name of a business owner or CEO. I'll just click on the Zoom Info button and it often gives me their email and their cell phone. Ah. And, and so that, you know, it, it's, it's almost public record in a sense. Right. It just depends, obviously, if, they're, if, they're, if you are getting it from a source that says, in case of emergency, call this number. Yeah. Obviously, don't do that. Yeah. But you're saying, like, if you come across it through some other system or means that um, has organized and sorted this information, then obviously why not do it? Why not try? Well, and, and again, the, the world has changed. So there's entire nations that only have cell phones. Right. Right. They, they, they don't have direct dial or, or main office numbers. I mean, they, they've just skipped that whole level of technology. Mm. And, and there are many homes that only have cell phones and many people who only have cell phones. So I, I think that the distinction between the cell phone and the office phone is kind of a 20th century thing to a certain mm, extent. Yeah, I agree with that. But again, the, the, except in your own mind. In your own mind, you feel uncomfortable with it. Therefore, I would, just, I would just ask the question, why am I not calling this person? Why am I opting for email? And why am I not um, calling higher in the organization? And if I have their cell phone, why am I not using right. it? Right, I got that, yeah. And Because and, the answer usually is, I'm not comfortable right. with it. And that, I was gonna say, that's a, that's a great question. Is It's why am I not doing it? And then if the answer to that question is, because I'm afraid I got this from an emergency source yeah. or whatever. It's like, okay, yeah, fair that's enough. That's right. But that's rarely that's right. the case. Usually the case is, why am I not doing this? Like, uh, because I'm worried that he's going to say, I already, uh, I'm not yeah. interested. Why that's are you right. calling me? That's right. Whatever. Exactly. At the beginning of this, when I mentioned that uh, the idea of comfort zone, one of my favorite topics, there's a quote that I really, really like called, or that goes, the, the world offers you comfort, but you were not made for comfort, you were made for greatness. What do you think of that? And or do you have other words of inspiration that are kind of in line with that? I love that. Um, I, I, I think that um, our society is set up so that you, uh, you know, work a job and retire and, and uh, kind of live your final days in comfort. And I'm, I'm also reading Richard Branson's autobiography right now. There, there's a guy who's not about comfort zones. <laughs> oh my gosh, what, what a wild story that one is. Um, so, but, but I love that though, you know, greatness rather than comfort. Um, I, I, I've been thinking in, in, in terms of peace uh, versus growth. And, and the, the, the two are not mutually exclusive, but, but if my focus is seeking peace, there, there's a peace meaning situations which aren't going to cause me conflict and anxiety and fear, then I'm going to deny myself many opportunities for growth. And again, it's, it's, it, they're not mutually exclusive, but I'm, I'm trying to say yes to growth as much as I possibly can. Um, and and I, so far, I haven't put myself in any situations that I'm afraid are going to actually kill me. Right. Richard Branson does. <laughs> All right start wrapping things up here what does success look like for you personally success you know we all want to make money and and uh, accumulate things and be able to travel and so on th th those things are are nice but ultimately success for me is having impact positive impact on the people around me my family my loved ones my clients be being able to help other people realize their full and and then begin to operate in impactful ways themselves that's that's kind of an ultimate measure of success for me and you've you've mentioned a couple books throughout this but uh what if you had to pick your top three that you'd recommend for someone to read what would those be yeah you know so i i won't include the bible because for me it's always number one 
Um, but, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I mean, it, it, it's a timeless classic. Um, that's, that's where I learned about proactivity many years ago. Um, learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. I, I believe that that book um, g gives some solid techniques and strategies for being able to become more optimistic and therefore to accomplish so much in life. Um, I'd also put in there Awaken the Giant Within by uh, Tony Robbins. I, I, I think that book is, is a classic that uh, has so much impact for so many people. And I have to toss in a Sandler book as well. So I'd, I'd say you can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar by David Sandler. Um, if people aren't familiar with Sandler, that's, that's a great entry point. And currently, I'm just really into Wayne Dyer. So I'd say anything by Wayne Dyer is worth picking up. Wayne Dyer. What's, what's his background? D-Y-E-R. He's more of a spiritual teacher. So um, he's, he's been on uh, NPR or um, PBS for many years. He, he died a couple of years ago, but uh, he's got 30 or 40 books. Last name D-Y-E-R. Um, the one I'm currently rereading is called Power of Intention. Awesome. And then my last uh, question is uh, movies. I'm a big movie person. Yep. What is your favorite movie Preferably, if, if you have one that maybe we haven't heard of, or is a, a you know a sleeper hit. Yeah. So um, Matrix. Everybody's familiar with the Matrix. To me, that the Matrix is a metaphor for so many different things, but particularly that adult ego state that I talked about. Because at the end of the first movie, when you know it dawns on Neo that he is the chosen one, he understands his full potential. Um, he just raises his hand, and the bullets fall. That's, that's the adult ego state right there. He, when he's fighting off the bad guys, there's very little effort on his part. He, he's stoic because he's Keanu Reeves, but <laughs> still, he's, he's stoic. And, and that, that's the nature of the adult ego state, so I love that one. Probably my favorite movie is Inception. I don't know if that's a sleeper. It shouldn't have been. It should have won Academy Awards, and everybody should have seen it, but a lot of people did. That's a great movie. I, I think there's all kinds of deep metaphysical truths in that movie, and I, I can watch it over and over again. But, but to me, what one of the biggest ahas of that movie was um, that uh, we create our own dreams. We, we can even impact other people's dreams, right? The premise of the movie. Therefore, we can completely affect our waking life, right? It is ours to make, right? I, I love the idea that, that they uh, uh, enlisted the help of dream architects, right? And, and so, to make that. Right. And, and so we, we may as well be architects of our own life. Just a fun fact on the Inception movie. Um, have you seen the, there's a little behind the scenes um, yes. clip on Christopher Nolan basically was coming off of Batman, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hugh, I can't remember which movie it was that was directly before Inception, but he was basically so successful with that one that um, the, whatever the recording or the um, producing company was, Fox, I think. Yeah. They basically were like, yeah, okay, you can, you can do whatever you want. And he finally was able to um, do Inception, which he had worked on and pitched for many years before. Yeah. Yeah. But they spent like this one, I'll have to, I don't know if you've seen the clip that I'm talking about. They spent like a, like half of their budget on 15, or maybe it was like 30 seconds of the movie in that hall, the hotel hallway scene. Yes. And they actually made the that whole set on this gigantic rotating. Have you yes. seen that? Oh, it's fascinating. It's crazy. Um, and, yeah, the, and when you is. see that, it, when you see what went into it for me, when I went back and watched it, I was like, that is just incredible. Like the art and the time and the thought and everything. And even the stunt like practicing that they had to do just yeah. for that one thing I know. is crazy. I agree. But fantastic movie. Yeah, it really is. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much, Jeff, for jumping on today. And um, It's a blast. I enjoyed it. Any, anything, any other closing thoughts? No, you, you do. Oh, I guess what's, how, do, how do people... How um, can people get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, website is schneider.sandler.com. Last, last name is spelled S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R dot Sandler, just like adamsandler.com. Email jeffs at sandler.com. Um, send me a LinkedIn uh, invitation. I'll accept it. And you can also go out to my YouTube page. Uh, just search for Jeff Schneider Sandler Training. Awesome. 
Well, thanks so much, Jeff, for joining Thank us. Thank you. And um, we'll, we'll see you around. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. As always, you can check out the show notes in the description on the podcast or visit my website, chriskiefer.net, to find any other relevant links or information that was discussed on the show. We'll see you next time. You are listening to The Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.